Lab Talk with Laura. Listen, I implore ya. Won't never bore ya. Lab Talk with Laura. Always more in store ya. Lab Talk with Laura. Welcome to the 20th episode of Lab Talk with Laura. My guests today are Forrest Bullock and Will Daniels. Um, Forrest is the graduate program director for the one-year master's in the geographic information science um, program in the UMass Geoscience Department. Beautiful. He's originally from Hygiene, Colorado. Mm-hmm. Um, never heard of that before. It's a very clean place. <laughs> um, oh. And now he lives in Springfield, Massachusetts. Um, he got his PhD in geography from Texas A&M University. Kick him. Um, and he studies geography and GIS education, the knowledge, skills, and practices needed for expertise in that field. Thank you for joining us, Forrest. It's great to be here. Um, also joining us today is Will Daniels. He's a postdoc in the geoscience department at UMass Amherst, originally from Northfield, Minnesota. He got his PhD in geology from Brown University. He studies Arctic paleoclimate and uses lake sediment cores as archives of the past environmental changes to understand the mid-Pliocene warm period about three million years ago. That's a mouthful. Did I botch that? No, that's pretty good, though. <laughs> okay. He also recently participated in a NASA mission to simulate long-duration space missions at the Johnson Space Center in Houston. Um, so we'll be talking to him about that, too, today. Thanks for joining us, Will. It's great to be here. Thanks. Um, joining us, my co-host today is comedian and cartoonist Woozy Kurtz, who performs all throughout New England. Thank you for joining us, Woozy. Thank you for having me. Cool. So I think we'll just jump right into it, and uh, we'll talk to Forrest first. Um, so maybe if you could just start and tell us about what you do. Perfect. Uh, it's really great to be back on student radio. Uh, I have done this in a past life, once upon a time, back in my undergraduate. So it's very fun to be back around. Uh, I am currently a lecturer uh, in the Department of Geosciences uh, and also the Department of Environmental Conservation. So I have a split appointment here on campus and I teach all things geographic information science and by extension, all things geography. So I'm a geographer by training. All of my degrees are in geography. So I grew up in Colorado and did my undergraduate at the University of Northern Colorado in the lovely town of Greeley, Colorado. I highly recommend thinking about going there sometime. Is that in the mountains uh, or is it, it in the flat part of it Colorado? Is, it is in the flat part of Colorado, oh, okay. right? It, you can see them in the distance if you think about it long enough. <laughs> uh, but but Greeley's a wonderful college town and it's a, uh, a, a great uh, small university to about 12, 13,000 students. Uh, last time I checked uh, and a wonderful place. Uh, to get an undergraduate degree. And that's where I did my student radio too. So shout out back to them. Uh, did my uh, undergraduate work in geography there. Went on for a master's degree at the University of Idaho uh, in Moscow, Idaho. That's up in like the panhandle part of Idaho where it's green and beautiful and I miss it every day. So uh-huh. be, uh, another big strong recommendation for Moscow, Idaho uh, out there. Uh, did my PhD at Texas A&M, like you said. Uh, geography all the way. Uh, as soon as I started doing research, um, after my undergraduate thesis was about helium supply, so I'm more than happy to talk about helium at any point uh, today or anytime. Uh, always geography education and GIS education after that. So. I've tried to stay as consistent as possible. <laughs> so what got you into geography? Uh, geography has always been, I kind of follow that expected stereotype of the geographer, of the kid who liked looking at maps okay. growing up. And I certainly did that when I was in 
uh, pre, it was, it wasn't even in school. I was four years old and my birthday present was a children's atlas of the world. Oh. And one of my cherished possessions. And, uh, I just remember leafing through that and all, you know, looking at all the places and people and, you know, physical geography, human geography. Why are those mountains there? Why is that country there? All those different kind of things. So I certainly came into geography that way. It's not true of all geographers by any means, but I'll proudly wear the, the stereotypical hat on, <laughs> on that side. Uh, I kind of lost it a little bit when I was in high school. We don't teach geography in middle and high school as a mandatory subject in the U.S., so it's not something that you're guaranteed to be exposed to. Yeah. Uh, so I was really into music. I was really into uh, writing and, and kind of English. So I actually started my life as a music major who didn't pass auditions <laughs> to become <laughs> an English major for a semester. And then I was in uh, the 8 a.m., you know, uh, geography of the U.S. and Canada course, and I was like, "Oh, you can major in this? That's pretty awesome." Yeah. Uh, then I tried to become a theater major. The office was closed, and became a geographer instead. <laughs> <laughs> Happenstance. <laughs> it's amazing how little things like that can mm -hmm. shape your life. I don't. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. It's it's those small events that you might not. Uh, know in the moment are going to be really impactful whether it's getting or not getting a job meeting or not meeting someone at a conference or whatever it might be yeah. you can look back on and say that's the that's the hinge yeah somebody just like left early from the theater department mm -hmm. yeah. <laughs> and then and now you're a geographer <laughs> i love doing theater design like stage design lighting design kind of stuff that was uh, i had a ton of fun doing that and uh but the geographers were were there so <laughs> it's a good thing to be nice not a lot of demand for geography? I th well, I think there's uh, definitely uh, geographers have a really important role in a lot of different uh, places and industries. So, oh, I don't mean, I mean, not a lot of demand for geographers. I meant like in the there's spaces open in the geography program. Right. Yes. Well, well I think that the geography programs are uh, generally we call geography a discovery major. So nobody or a very small N of people comes into college as a geography major. So when I was in my undergraduate, I worked new student orientation. So for two years, just kind of like what's going on around campus uh, right now this summer, all the new freshmen come in and they are selecting their majors and selecting their coursework and doing all of that. Uh, I worked new student orientation for two years as an undergraduate, and we had one geography major in two years. But our classes were... Uh, I think about 20 students every year. So obviously the geographers are coming from someplace and usually it's kind of like my experience. You take a class and you say, oh, that's, this is something I can major in. This is something that has pretty strong career paths, especially with the, the GIS stuff. Uh, it has broad application in a number of different fields and people say, oh, I'm going to go get that major. I, I love that uh, you've referred to it as a discovery major for geography because it's like, oh, it's all about like finding new places and stuff and mapping them out. Exactly. <laughs> Got to yeah. figure out the landscape and then, then you can know the way you're going. Yeah. Yeah. I recently bought, um, I just moved and I bought a um, shower curtain that's a map of the world and it's so deeply inadequate. <laughs> it, it complete, they completely left Antarctica out of the picture because <laughs> I think huh. they were just like, that's inconvenient. <laughs> like it's, it's, you know, it's one of the, I forget all the names of the different projections, it's, you know, it's one of those old projections that makes like Canada look like it's yeah. half the world. The Mercator projection is not kind yeah. to Antarctica. Yeah. <laughs> so Forrest, as a geographer, do you have a favorite or least favorite projection? 
I love the um, Waterman Butterfly projection. It's oh. my favorite um, by far because it, it looks like a butterfly and uh, it preserves, I think it's the neatest way to preserve a lot of the aspects of shape and area without hugely distorting things. Mercator is the worst projection. Uh, but also the most common. But right? also the most common. And Mercator served its purpose. So this is something that I talk about. I teach an introduction to GIS course every year. And we talk about how we really trust maps. When someone hands you a map, like a road map, or you're looking on Google Maps or something, you believe it. It's a map. It's yeah. a very authoritative thing. It's huh. a very authoritative artifact. And so when we're looking at something like the Mercator projection... Well, that's the map that's been on every classroom wall since post-World War II. That's the map that uh, if you we did a Google image search for map of world right now, probably a Mercator projection would pop up. And so it's just become the, you know, kind of the standard, this is what a map is. But it's not, the, the Mercator projection is not designed for us to uh, understand area because it distorts area widely. That's what the Mercator projection is really good at. Is it doesn't Greenland look like really a lot bigger than it is? It yeah, looks, absolutely. It looks like it's like the size of Africa yeah. on the Mercator projection. Exactly. Yeah. So on the Mercator projection, Greenland appears to be the size of Africa when it's really like an eleventh of the size of Africa. You could fit eleven Greenlands into Africa, but because of the Mercator projection's distortion of area, as you go away from the equator everything looks massive. It's why uh, during the Cold War, the U.S. government preferred the Mercator projection because it made the Soviet Union look big and scary. Oh, it's this big presence in the, you know, it's always the, it was always in the top right corner of the map, right? Because they always split it in the Pacific. Uh, and so it made them look big and scary. Yeah. Uh, but the Mercator projection was designed for a purpose. It's a navigation map. So... Uh, when Mercator, who designed this projection back during the whole oh, 1600s, uh, created the projection, he created it so that people could make the sea trip from Europe to Africa to North America and back and do that in a way that would, it wasn't the shortest route, but it was the easiest way to navigate. You could draw the angle on the map and say, set a heading for whatever, and you would get there. Wouldn't get the fastest way, wouldn't get there the shortest way, but it was easy. Huh. And so the Mercator projection was used for navigation. We just have never gotten away from it. Huh. Can I ask an important question? Yes. Uh, how big and scary is the Soviet Union actually? It, it, is, it was the largest country in the world, and Russia still is the largest country in the world. So uh, it's just not that big and scary. Okay. <laughs> Is it is it true that the Mercator projection makes everything in the southern hemisphere look smaller? It seems like it to me. So it's the distortion in the Mercator projection. Uh, when you're turning a sphere, right, the Earth is round, which I hope isn't news to anybody. <laughs> but the Earth is, well, and it's roundish. It's not a perfect sphere. It's an oblate spheroid. And that's a difference. crumpling. <laughs> it's roundish. The Earth is kind of round. And when you turn a kind of round object onto a flat plane, distortion happens. Mm -hmm. The classic experiment to do this is to take an orange or like a clementine or something, draw the, draw the continents on there as best you can, and then peel it apart and see if you can keep it perfect oh. as you're doing that. And there's going to be tears and there's going to be flattening and things are going to look smushed and weird. And that's the, that's the best tactile way to do this. It's a great experiment uh, whenever you happen to have oranges lying around and you want to play with them. <laughs> um, 
the uh, so that distortion can come in a lot of different ways. You can distort the area. You can make things look bigger or smaller. You can distort the shape so they look smushed or stretched or stuff like that. You can distort direction so that there's no true north or that your directions are, uh, are uh, not accurate as to how they would be on the planet. And you can distort bearings. So if I'm walking, you know, at this angle, on my map, not might not be actually walking that angle on the actual planet if you were using it that way. So Mercator preserves that uh, directional, that bearing. I'm going this way, and I'm actually going this way. Mm. So I'm going to head my ship off the coast of England, and I'm going to Cape Cod. I'm going to go to Cape Cod because that's what Mercator is that preserves. But if I was trying to calculate the area of things, wildly, wildly uh, distorted. So... The Mercator projection, the further away you get from the equator in either direction, the more the area is distorted. So oh, that's okay. why Antarctica got chopped off of your shower <laughs> curtain because the distortion eventually it reaches infinity. So yeah. you'll have an infinite Antarctica bottom <laughs> of here. So the floor of my bathroom is actually Antarctica. Yes, right the floor now. of your bathroom is Antarctica. <laughs> yes. uh, so you brought up helium. Mm -hmm. So maybe uh, could you elaborate on, on what you studied with helium i love helium and helium is something i don't get to talk about enough so, so we're talking about helium like what people put in balloons exactly yeah. and you shouldn't put it in balloons is the first thing the most important takeaway is stop putting helium in balloons uh -oh. because it's more important of a resource than that uh -huh. so when i was in my undergraduate i was in a program called the mcnair scholars program it's named after the astronaut ronald mcnair who uh was one of the first African-American astronauts. He got his PhD from MIT. He was an incredibly smart and wonderful person. He fought to integrate his town's library when he was nine because he wanted to go read some books. And the lady said, well, you can't check books out here wow. because you're not white. And he got his library integrated. So wonderful story. Uh, he, uh, he tragically died on Challenger. Uh, though, and so a program was created and named after him to encourage students from underrepresented backgrounds to get into the sciences, to go to graduate school, uh, you know, get PhDs and do all that kind of fun stuff. So, as a first generation student from a low income background, I was qualified for the McNair program, and so I got to join it. And one of the parts of the McNair program is do research. And mm. so I said to myself, Oh, well, as a geographer, I could do research on just about anything. And one day, uh, my dad works for an aerospace company. I was home, and uh, I said, how's work? And he usually doesn't talk about work because a lot of classified stuff. But he said it was hard to buy helium today. Mm. And I was like, well, well, where do you buy helium? Where does helium come from? How would I obtain some helium if I were in the helium-obtaining business? So I did my McNair Scholars thesis on helium. And as it turns out, do, do we know where helium comes from? Stop and shop. No. <laughs> Good guess. Thank you. I know that helium is important, but I'm realizing I have no idea where mm -hmm. it comes from. Uh, do we mine it out of rocks? We do mine it. Oh. Helium is uh, collects through alpha decay, so radioactive decay of like uranium and oh. whatnot, and those alpha particles are helium particles, and they collect in the same uh, chambers that natural gas would collect. It's a strange in. idea to harvest a gas. Uh, from rocks yeah absolutely so right. when you're when you're puncturing a natural gas if you're mining for natural gas there is often helium in that same uh, is it liquefied and pressurized or is it in its gas it's in state? its gaseous form mm -hmm. so uh -huh. that because we can't helium is so helium collects there you have to be very careful about collecting it 
Uh, and the first terrestrial source of helium, despite being element number two in the periodic table, helium was one of the last elements to be um, discovered and collected on Earth. Huh. So helium's named after the sun, so that's where the Heli comes from, uh, because some scientists in uh, Europe were looking at uh, solar spectral lines. And so astronomers and other scientists, this is kind of eighteen late 1800s, found this new spectral line as they were staring at the sun. And so they said, oh, helium, it's in the sun. And helium is the second most abundant thing in the universe. So if you weighed the universe up, you would get a bunch of hydrogen, then you get a bunch of helium, and then everything else. Number one and number two. Number one and number okay. two, so, exactly. So wait, they saw it in the sun and then said, we have maybe we have some on Earth, let's go crack some rocks? They didn't think <laughs> we had any on Earth. So ah, they said, it's in the sun, it's helium, Maybe we'll see some sometime. And it was actually a volcanologist who found it on Earth because they were looking at an eruption of Mount um, Etna in Italy through their spectral lines. They're like, oh, I wonder what this, oh, I wonder what this volcano is putting up. And they saw the helium line. Oh. And so they're like, oh, there is helium on this planet. We just have to go to the volcano and get it. And then, well, well maybe, <laughs> maybe that won't work out. <laughs> go uh, with your balloons. And no. so, right, exactly. Go, just go in and, and grab some helium. Uh, from there... A couple little samples were collected here and there from just some geological explorations. and uh, But no one really found a terrestrial source of helium until the early 1900s. It was actually in Kansas. So uh, in the time in Kansas, if you were mining and punctured a natural gas well, well, that meant you had a city, right? You meant you had money. It's just the same thing as the oil rush, same thing as the natural gas rush. When you So what would happen is... People would say, oh, there's a gas well here. Let's bring in, you know, we're going to start settling the town. Let's start carving up Main Street. We'll have a band to play. And the tradition was to light a big bale of hay on fire and to put that over the natural gas well, which would <laughs> light it on fire, which then meant they could do what they need to do to cap the well and start mining it. Oh. Essentially, back in the early 1900s, whenever you had natural gas, you burnt a bunch of it off and then did some there were explosives involved and whatnot and then you could cap the well and be able to to drill and mine from there when they did that with this um, helium well in kansas it blew out so the bale of fire did not ignite and they said well that's weird let's try it again and it kept blowing out and so some kansas uh university of kansas professors said well that's really weird let's go collect this so i like to imagine the kansas professors like looking over this well and just like holding a big container and going, I'm just, <laughs> just capturing some of this strange gas, don't mind me. <laughs> and what they found out is that it was helium. And so mm -hmm. one of the world's largest helium supplies is underneath Kansas and Oklahoma oh, okay. and, and the Texas panhandle. Yeah. Uh, and that's where our helium supply hangs out. Now, the problem with helium supply is that the there's a mismatch between the supply and the value of helium. Mm -hmm. And so this is where... After a bunch of physical science, my research project f turned to Karl Marx and value theory. Okay. And uh, it was a really fun transition into that kind of um, way of thinking, kind of like an economic geography or a, uh, that you might think about. So the U.S. government had a huge helium supply. For the longest time, we had all the helium in the world. Hmm. And we didn't want to give it to anybody. World War II, when the, when the Nazi government wanted helium for their... Their Hindenburgs and their uh, Zeppelins and whatnot, we said no. They filled it up with hydrogen instead, and we all know how that worked out. Mm -hmm. 
So even we had this massive helium supply, and this goes into the 1990s. And this helium supply was so massive that Congress, in, in this very strange bipartisan mid-90s thing, one of the most bipartisan bills that was passed was, let's sell all the helium. Like everyone's like, oh, we got all this helium. <laughs> They're like, just get rid of it. Get rid of it. Who needs this anymore? <laughs> and so we started to sell helium at really discounted prices. So that's why you could go fill up your balloon at the grocery store for 50 cents or a dollar or something. Well, as it turns out, helium has very important and essentially irreplaceable industrial properties. So helium remains a liquid at the standard atmosphere and as close as we can get to absolute zero. So helium will never freeze uh-huh. under a standard atmosphere. Okay. That makes it very good for cooling. Yeah. That makes it very good for cooling everything from satellites, from indust- very hot industrial things. Uh, if you've ever had uh, an MRI or a really high-resolution X-ray, all of those are cooled by liquid helium. Uh. And we don't have anything that can replicate that there's no artificial helium out there helium is also important for uh diving so if you're doing deep sea diving uh you get a blend called heliox which is a helium oxygen blend that reduces the chance you'll get the bends uh-huh. coming back up because of the pressure in your lungs exactly. or something yeah because like because when you're normally when you're doing the diving you know you get nitrogen in your blood and that's the bends and then you can't absorb oxygen anymore and then you die and it's we use helium that. all the time in our lab yeah in geology yeah what, exactly what do you guys use it for it's a carrier gas and uh, gas chromatography oh mm-hmm. uh, okay yeah so helium has all these properties because it's inert it's a noble gas it doesn't bond with anything uh, it's perfect for that type of use in, in the sciences. And so there's a whole host of things that helium is really important for. We use it to fill up balloons. Did we know about those before like, we decided to just start tag sailing it away? Oh, absolutely. But we had this huge supply. Oh, we got plenty of helium. There's a helium supply farm in, outside of Amarillo. We'll have tons of helium. We don't need to... Then we started selling the helium supply off. And suddenly our supply started to dwindle. and But the price, so normally under supply and demand, if we think back to our economics, as your supply goes down, your price goes up. Except the government was being forced to sell off its helium at very under, under market prices. So the value of helium had been messed up because of the kind of government intervention. And because we said, we have so much, we're going to keep selling it off. And keep selling it off and keep selling it off without really understanding the consequences of that. In that it's not like we have an alternative. It's not like we have uh, uh, a second option for what we want to do, for what we can do to replace it in certain sectors. So into the, I, f- I finished up my McNair thesis uh 2009 2010 and kind of was someone's got to fix this mm-hmm. otherwise we're going to run out of helium and it's super important and for science and for medicine exactly for so yeah. what started happening is that you couldn't get helium under a certain quality under a certain um, purity and so balloon manufacturers were buying the pure helium that you would use in industrial purposes It's like, well, it's more expensive, but whatever. Eventually, and in one of the strange circular nature of politics and science, 
uh, during the Obama administration, when the Republicans controlled Congress, a bipartisan helium bill came out of it. Uh, I think 12 or 13, I don't remember off the top of my head, to basically say, we're done selling off the helium supply. Let's build back up our supply. And the price the price gap rebounded, and now helium is more market-priced. And we're starting to understand that we either need to find more helium, the Russians might have a lot of helium, but we don't know, mm. or we need to start conserving it. And that's why it's harder to buy helium. So it's, yeah. it, it's market price, but they are still selling it for balloons. Yes, you can still buy helium for balloons, but that's why your balloons are so expensive now. Oh, oh. I had noticed that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So we really need to think about helium as a non-renewable Absolutely. resource. Absolutely, yeah, helium yeah. is non-renewable. And why can't we like concentrate it out of our air? So there's not a lot of helium in our atmosphere. So that is how we distill other noble gases like argon. You can you can essentially fractional distill argon out of the out of the atmosphere and some of the other noble gases. Helium is unique in another way in that it's the only thing that can leave our atmosphere. Besides Mm. rockets and stuff. But helium can so helium is lighter than air, that's why your balloons go up. And eventually it gets up into the upper atmosphere. Uh and then it concentrates at the poles, the poles where the magnetic field is weakest and the solar wind can actually sweep the helium away. Oh. So helium is entirely non-renewable. It is, uh, and it is also very difficult to capture and to recapture. You can create it if you're very good at nuclear fusion, but we're not good at <laughs> nuclear fusion. Okay, so. yeah. So um, uh, you recently got a big grant from NSF. Mm-hmm. Um, do you want to talk about that and like what your plans for that are? Or? Yeah, absolutely. They're not helium related, yeah, yeah. Uh, unfortunately. Changing direction. <laughs> so I've, I was recently awarded a grant with some partners uh, at the University of Minnesota, uh, University of Southern California, and the University of Illinois Urbana-Champaign, uh, which is the main Illinois campus. Uh, and we are going to work on a project Uh, Generally, you can think about it as an hour of cyber infrastructure. The primary goal is to design learning modules uh, based on Jupyter Notebooks, um, which are, Jupyter Notebooks are really fun, interactive, uh, kind of, it's like a coding platform. So you would load up a Jupyter Notebook either from your computer or from a web browser and learn some kind of coding thing. So you might go through a Python lesson and learn the basics of how to write a loop or something. Or you might do some kind of analysis on a data set that is being hosted on a computer someplace and then you can learn how to analyze it and then do your own analysis and it all exists in the browser. So you don't have to go out and buy a supercomputer. Oh, you don't cool. have to go out and like pay all those server costs and stuff. Yeah. Instead, it's all built up and available for you in that Jupyter Notebook. So our goal is to build 17 of those modules along topics of cyber literacy. Mm. So the same group uh, and I have written a paper that'll be coming out soon in the professional geographer on what is necessary for cyber literacy in kind of 21st century GIS. So there are the classic components of knowing, you know, spatial analysis, spatial literacy, fundamentals of GIS and geography. How do things relate to each other? How do you analyze spatial patterns? How can you discover, you know, spatial interrelations and what are the right methods and tools for all that kind of stuff? Uh, But there's also the computer science side of things. Can you run uh, or can you do certain types of coding? Can you interact with certain types of platforms? It's different working on a supercomputer 
then on your little desktop computer, mm -hmm. you can do different stuff, but you have to know how to do it differently because they don't behave the same. And so our goal is to create these Jupyter Notebook-based modules so that anybody who has found themselves needing this type of instruction in their class, mm -hmm. uh, anybody who maybe is struggling integrating it into their coursework, anyone who wants their students to have that capacity can then load one of them up, in their, insert it into the, into the coursework, and then can have their students benefit from that. Is that going to be something that's like open to the public? So like if a random person wants to try this and learn about it, or if like a scientist is like, I think I need this skill set, could they also just go and, and use it? Yeah, absolutely. Our, our, our goal is to uh, develop these modules, train as many people as we can on them. So uh, starting with, you know, higher ed institutions, uh, but also making sure that we're, we're bringing these to as many different types of institutions as possible. So not just R1 research schools, but, mm. uh, you know, liberal arts colleges and community colleges and uh, historically black colleges or tribal colleges, all because there's, there's a risk that you can build something fancy and wonderful and a great teaching tool that gets locked away someplace. Mm. Oh, yeah, I know the person who has the password yeah. to the site or something like that. So exactly like you were um, hinting at, Laura, we want this to be, here's the website, here are the lessons, they all run, have fun. Nice. And so that hopefully we can bring as many people as possible to the table over the course. It's a three-year project so that by the end of it, uh, we've got this great set of materials that people can bring into the classroom whatever their level, or you could bundle all 17 of them, and that's a pretty good course, I think. Yeah. And really be able to, to you know, enable students to be, to be able to have that type of analytical capacity. Nice. Okay, I think it might be a good time to move on and talk to Will, but I want to just give you the opportunity to, if there's anything about your research or work that you want to talk about that hasn't come up. I think one of the most important things to think about in terms of... Uh, geographers and, and spatial analysis and GIS is that there is an incredible advantage to thinking about the spatial component of whatever problem you're thinking about. I often tell my students when they're in my GIS course and I will have last fall I had students from 20 different majors wow. in my GIS course and GIS and um, spatial thinking and geography in general is broadly relevant to most of most science and most of what we're thinking about. Yeah. So if, uh, as people are thinking about whether you're a student thinking about areas to go into, whether uh, perhaps you're a researcher thinking about different ways of thinking about programs, there's some pretty interesting and fun work going on in, in geography departments all over the place. And if you've got any, any hint of a spatial uh, component, there's pretty much a geography of everything so there's economic geography or biogeography or political geography you can just keep going yeah i i have a textbook on the geography of wine there's geographers are out there and they're very uh they're very fun we're very fun people and we like to talk about more <laughs> than maps you're listening to lab talk with laura on 91.1 fm wmua amherst i'm your host laura federuso and my guests today are dr forrest bolick and dr will daniels both of the Geoscience Department here at UMass Amherst. My co-host is comedian Woozy Kurtz. Jumping right back into it, maybe we'll turn and start talking to Will. Um, and so, Will, I, you know, I summarized that you do paleoclimate research, but you've yep. also done this really cool thing recently where you did this NASA mission. So I'll, I'll leave it up to you what you want to talk about first. Well, or... I think we should talk about NASA a okay. little bit. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, you, you were recently in Houston. Yeah, it's, it's, 
Funny thing, looking back on it, it's, uh, on one hand, I was the commander of a NASA mission. On the other hand, I was just a, a research subject in a sleep study. <laughs> so it's kind of like this cool accomplishment on one hand, but also just... Uh, Do you, you feel know. a little bit like a lab rat? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I spent uh, about two months down at the Johnson Space Center at NASA. Um, the first two weeks of that were training for our isolation experiment, and then we had six weeks living in the pod, and then a week of debriefing afterwards. Um, and... It was one of the weirder things I've done in my life, uh, but it was a lot of fun. Was, I learned a lot, um, and yeah, it's exciting science going on. When, when you say we, how many people were involved? It was myself and three others. There was a NASA intern, an Air Force pilot, and a research scientist from the University of California who studies radiation and immunology, um, so he sends... Oh mice to the space station basically uh-huh. so I, of the of the four of us i kind of had the least experience with nasa related missions uh-huh. um, and so what was the the purpose of this study like can you right so there's a there's a whole suite of places on earth where they do flight simulation or flight analogs um, where they study people in confinement and isolation um, there's one in hawaii there's one in russia um, there's one at NASA called HERA, which is the Human Exploration Research Analog. Um, and their goal is to kind of understand how people are going to exist in spaceships so they can kind of optimize the systems for those long distance missions. For example, one of the challenges that astronauts are going to face is as soon as we leave low Earth orbit, have to go to the moon or Mars or asteroid, wherever we're going to go, there's no longer sunrises or sunsets. There's no circadian cycle in oh. light. Mm. Um, plus, you're living in a tin can anyway, so there's not, you know, sunrise or sunset. So our sleep schedule can get kind of wonky. And it's, our sleep then is regulated by the lights internally inside the spaceship. And so they're kind of trying to optimize what intensity of light, what color of light, what's the timing of light shifts, et cetera. Um, and in general, they're trying to develop a fatigue model under different lighting environments. And there's a lot of other variables as well that they're interested in, but that's one of the main ones. What does a fatigue model mean? Um, so fatigue model is just like over the course of your day, um, you'll be more alert and more tired at different times. Um, so example, when you first wake up in the morning, the first five minutes, you might still be wiping the sleep out of your eyes and you like can't function. Um, and five minutes would be... Ten minutes, I don't know. <laughs> would be like fast yeah. for me. <laughs> I'm going to think like two hours. But, um, <laughs> but over the course of the day, that your energy, your alertness kind of ebbs and... Um, comes back and so one of the ways we test that is what they call the pvt stands for the psychomotor vigilance test but that test is basically we have an ipad and it's just a black screen and there's a little gray box in the middle of it and you're watching it and you're watching it and once in a while numbers will start counting up um, and you have to hit the screen as fast as soon as you see the numbers Mm. and they're basically milliseconds counting up and the faster you hit the screen the lower your you know, the lower the number will be. Mm-hmm. And you do that 50 times in a row, first thing when you wake up, and you do it again <laughs> um, an hour later, oh. and then an hour later, after lunch, after you exercise, at different times we'll do the PVT. And that's kind of their, one of the main metrics of our fatigue or alertness. Um, oh. So that's one example of how they're kind of measuring that. Yeah. What are you doing with the rest of your time? <laughs> <laughs> so 
Yeah, because this is a sleep study, we, we were limited in how much we were allowed to sleep. Um, we were limited to five hours per night, oh um, Monday through Friday, and then we had eight hours on Saturday and Sunday, so we could kind of recover. Um, and uh, so we had long days to fill. Um, <laughs> and a lot of those were doing different types of simulations, doing the PVTs. Uh, we did flight simulations. We had medical simulations. We had spaceship emergency type simulations. We did a lot of different types of science experiments like growing plants and um, brine shrimp um, oh. and doing different experiments with them. Um, Mario Kart? <laughs> like anything, anything, anything like recreational? Yeah, so for entertainment, we had Netflix. Okay. So we could watch anything. Um, we had Amazon Music, so we could listen to pretty much anything. And we had a bunch of board games. Oh. Um, but yeah. how much space did you have? So if you decided to watch something, was everybody, everybody was watching it. It was either all or nothing. <laughs> how, yeah. big, how big was it, like the area you were in? Well, this studio here is about 20 feet by 20 feet. It's basically kind of the inside of a RV or a Winnebago. Okay. Something With like that. With four people. With four people. And it was divided into two different levels. So level one module had most of our science related stuff um, and the level two module is more of the living space there's a little galley um, there was a little exercise equipment a stationary bike and some weights and there was the, oh that's about it a bunch, <laughs> a bunch of cabinets for food storage yeah because all the food that we ate was preloaded into the module we never got resupplied or anything okay what, what was the what kind of food you got the food was good i kind of enjoyed not having to grocery shop or prepare for myself. Yeah. And I, I liked it maybe better than some of my crewmates did. I thought it was, it was quite good. So how about half of it was freeze dried um, and half of it was already hydrated, um, but like stored in such a way to be sterile. So we would have something like a grilled pork chop. It wasn't freeze dried, it was just like they grilled the pork chop and they put it in this bag closed it and then put it in the shelf and it's supposed to last three years. <laughs> Can really? you imagine just eating a grilled pork chop three years after you cooked it oh. <laughs> at room temperature, stored at room temperature? Um, they give you a microwave or something or you gotta eat that cold? So they gave, we have a little convection <laughs> oven, like a toaster oven, um, so we could heat it up. And we had a little water dispenser that would do either hot water or cold water. Um, so that was our entire kitchen. Hot water, cold water, and like a little my, toaster oven. Um, but I just thought the food, I mean, it's kind of a miracle of engineering in a way. Mm -hmm. Like, I just, I don't know how they sterilize these, these items to be preserved for so long yeah. at room temperature. Did you get the astronaut ice cream? No. You know what I'm talking yeah, about? Yeah, I know exactly what you're talking <laughs> about. And uh, I, I was really hoping for it, but we never got it. I bought some, like, as a gift for my nephew recently, and it didn't make it <laughs> when he came to visit. <laughs> I ate it myself. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm not familiar with this. Is there an, it's an, like freeze-dried ice cream. It's so good. Where did you find you it? You can just get it? Um, you, I got it at the A to Z learning store in Northampton. Oh, you can frequently get place. it at, like, museums. It's, like, really expensive. Uh, <laughs> and, go, go to and, Yard Goats game sometime down Hartford. They got, got a stand full of it. Yeah, hmm. yeah. Highly recommend the astronaut ice cream. I'm really disappointed they didn't give that to you. One of my favorite items was the <laughs> shrimp cocktail. Oh. So that was a, f a freeze dried item, and we just add 50 milliliters of cold water, um, 
and let it sit for about 10 minutes and kind of mix it. It's got the cocktail sauce already in it. Um, and the shrimp get nice and soft to this. Oh, wow. 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 Okay. I want this so bad, <laughs> this, this food situation that you're describing, because I really want to have like these nice foods, but I don't want to do anything for them. I just want to, ha- like, yeah, reach in and get like a fully done. St- um, sorry. Wow. Yeah, I know what you're saying. Dying. Like, it's, it's good for people that are, are too lazy to like cook elaborate dishes. Like, everything's just there huh. already prepared. You just I like to say I'm too busy. But you're, <laughs> sure. but, I mean, you're probably right. Sure. But you know, yeah, somewhere in between for me. Yeah. How um, did you? How did you get involved? Did you just wander? Were you just wandering the space center one day, and they're like, "Hey, come into this pod with us." <laughs> well, if you go to um, the NASA Hera webpage, um, it it says what you need to do to apply mm-hmm. and, and become part of it. Um, the requirements are basically that you uh, are thirty years old, have a master's in some STEM field, oh, yes. um, and <laughs> are non-smoking. And if you meet those requirements, you can send them your CV and they'll get back to you. And I think that they're definitely looking for, uh, for volunteers. So I sent them my CV about a year ago. And about six months later, they got back and said, we're interested. You know, we have a mission coming up. We're interested. And they flew me down there to do some medical and psychological screening. Um, they had to give me one waiver because I was a half an inch too tall. Um, but they were like, it's okay. Um, <laughs> And then a few months later, they said, okay, the mission's on, we've got your crew, and we'll do it. Um, so that was kind of the process, and I was just very interested in, in space, human space exploration, so yeah. that's why I wanted to get involved. Um, a, previous fr- a friend of mine had previously done a different Hera mission, so mine was actually the 17th one. Oh, wow. So they've done quite a series of these, um, and they do them in groups of four, and each four has a different set of parameters that they're studying. So maybe a different duration. Ours was 45 days. Um, Tess, my friend who's done it previously, hers was 30 days. Mm. And they could sleep longer, and I think they could exercise more. So ours was a little bit tougher than hers. Um, But the next one, it sounds like, is going to be even tougher. It sounds like they're reducing privacy even more. So my understanding, and I don't know for sure, but is that they're taking down all the walls between the sleeping pods, and they're also taking the door off of the bathroom. Um, <laughs> That's just uh, hazy. <laughs> <laughs> so I think they may have a harder time getting volunteers for this next one. We'll see. It's all wait. Gotta just we'll, exhibition. Gotta launch all that into space. Interesting. Even the space station has a door on the bathroom. <laughs> Future of mankind. This doesn't seem like, in in the grand scope of like NASA expenses, that a door is really gonna is really taking up yeah. that much money. I think they're putting a curtain in front of the toilet but maybe mm. that's it. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Mm. Um, yeah, so they're trying to reduce space and reduce privacy at the same time here. Wow. So you know, did you know going into it what the like parameters would be that you get five hours of sleep and things like that? We knew a lot, um, you know, because we were research subjects, they had to tell us quite a bit about what was going on. Um, but there were several unknowns, and those, I'm not supposed to talk about those. I've been sworn to secrecy. Um, but a lot of the things, like the five hours of sleep, we knew that was going to happen. Uh, we knew there would be blood draws involved and um, saliva samples and urine samples. Um, what kind of board games did you have? Pretty. M- we brought a few board games in. One was called The Captain is Dead. Yes. Oh, 
and it was very complicated. It's basically we, we liked it because we, it was on a spaceship and like yeah, just all across oh, the spaceship. But it was really complicated, so we only played it a couple times. The, the <laughs> go-to board game for us was Scrabble. Uh, it's a game that's uh, stood the test of time, I think. Yeah, stood Wait, the test of our hair mission. Was there anybody on the? Um, did you call it? Do you call it a mission? Yeah. Yeah. Was anybody on the mission like designated as captain? Uh, <laughs> Just I, that would make that no, game a lot. I was loaded. the commander. Oh, there was no captain, but I was the commander. Okay. Oh, okay. Did uh, that, did that uh, afford you any extra, either responsibilities or perks? No. It was randomly. It was just a title. It was just a title. Um, it was randomly assigned. Maybe I could have pulled the commander card um, <laughs> and started giving orders, but I never did that. And maybe that's what one of the things they're trying to look at is like how easily like people fall into those roles. Yeah. yeah. Right. Yeah. See if you become a monster. Yeah. Yeah. I was not. But you stayed humble as commander. <laughs> oh yes. <laughs> we had. A, I was the commander. There was also a flight engineer and two mission specialists. So that's how our crew is divided up. Equally meaningless? All equally meaningless. There's balance there then. Although one of our flight simulations that we did, it required all four team members. Um, and myself and the flight engineer were working together to fly our, our little space pod that could, you know, our, our, our ship overall was called Graphos. And that's the ship that would take us from Earth to the asteroid. But when we got to the asteroid, we took a smaller ship that kind of detached from Graphos, and we could fly it down to the surface of the asteroid and do our geologic sampling and, what, and whatnot. And so during those flight simulations, the flight engineer and myself would fly that spaceship, and the two mission specialists would go into the airlock and don Oculus Rift goggles, and they would do the EVA, so extravehicular activity. They would uh, pretend to leave the, so they would start out inside our little space pod. And at one point we'd open the doors and they would come out and they would float down to the surface of the asteroid and we could see them in our s screens and uh, direct them to different rocks and sites to sample. Um, and they were controlling themselves with a PlayStation 4 controller. Um, <laughs> for the spaceship itself, we had two joysticks, one that gave the rotational control, so it would spin the ship, you know, pitch, yaw, mm -hmm. roll. Um, and the other controller was for the translational movements so that would kind of move to the right, move to the zenith or the mm -hmm. nadir. Um, and so we had f all four of us were interacting during these simulations even though we couldn't see each other we and we use the radio communications uh, uh -huh. a lot to get those done That's awesome. that was one of my favorite things was using yeah. the radio yeah so oh. so mm. playstation is like a useful skill yeah apparently <laughs> it has yeah. applications i think, I think, to there, was a, I think there was a, a submarine or an aircraft carrier and their preferred method of control for the ship was an xbox controller oh. so it's like legitimate video game that's skills. so funny and uh, yeah it makes sense it makes sense we're all used to using that or maybe not all but like mm -hmm. a lot of people have used them and they're intuitive and yeah, yeah. Huh. Mm -hmm. that's so funny but it was it is hard to manipulate the um the spaceship in it's different than a flight simulation on earth because there's no drag there's no air resistance mm. and so once you start a movement you keep going in that way um, until you apply the, the opposite 
Um, force. Did you have any big disasters, like where you like crashed into the asteroid? We crashed into the asteroid once in like one of so our you first would have, runs. If it were real, you would have died. <laughs> Maybe <kinda>. I don't know. <laughs> um, was it as a real asteroid that it was simula- simulating? It is. Or? It's we were simulating a mission to near Earth object one three six four something like that. I don't, I don't know if that's quite right, um, but it's a real asteroid out there, and in the real mission that they've designed. It would take about 300 days to get to the asteroid. They'd spend 20 days at the asteroid and then 300 days to come back. And so we kind of did that plan, just shrunk down to 45 days. Wow. And the other interesting thing about that in in this simulation is that as we got further and further away from Earth, they started building in a communication delay between ourselves and um, mission control. Uh And that's something that They've never had to deal with on ma- NASA missions yet. Um, well, you maybe heard about like the eight minutes of terror or something like that when the Curiosity rover landed on Mars. There mm-hmm. was eight minutes when they didn't know what was going on. That's had to do with the communication delay. But when we go to the moon, there's basically no delay. It's not that far. But when we go to somewhere like Mars or an asteroid, um, there's going to be a, a delay. And so we had at the longest, it was five minute one-way travel time meaning a message that we sent over the radio to Earth would take five minutes to arrive there. And so the earliest we could expect a message back would be another five minutes, so 10 minutes total. And so that made um, communicating more challenging. And I think that the way we kind of dealt with that is kind of doing things more autonomously, um, Mm -hmm. which was kind of nice. Um, But I think that's going to be one of the things NASA needs to figure out is how autonomous should they let these astronauts be in that case Mm -hmm. Um, because a lot of what the astronauts do is kind of determined beforehand and by schedules and protocols and so if things come up do they need to clear it with ground control or do they just do it that's a big question Sorry, that was a I'm lot. just thinking. About, <laughs> that's, that's I'm just really like, <laughs> I'm just, sur- I'm just forming a joke in my head, <laughs> truthfully, about a guaranteed ten minute delay and how it's like simulating say. texting my ex. You know, like, <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, I'm used to that autonomous. <laughs> like, just figure it out without the person. They're not going to respond for at least ten minutes. Uh-huh. <laughs> I'm just going to say that's how it works for me. <laughs> it's the the details are just so fascinating. Yeah, it's, it's like. I could pick your brain for hours. So after this experience, would you can I, like I don't know if this is ever on the radar, but like would you go on a real mission after this experience? Uh, like if you were invited to? I probably would. I don't know. I've gone back and forth, <laughs> and forth on this a lot. Um, the hardest part for me was just like I miss things on Earth, um, and that would be hard for me to go away for you know a year or two years or something like that. If it was like a trip to the moon and back, that doesn't take that long. I'd love <laughs> to do that. Um, if it's a trip to Mars, that would, I'm not sure. I've, ha- I've had the pleasure um, of one time meeting an astronaut that's been to the moon. That's like my nearest brush with, with fame, um, Dave, Commander Dave Scott. Um, and he had some f- interesting stories about being on the moon. One of things I thought was interesting. He said when they sleep, they sleep in these hammocks in the space um, pod on the moon, in the lunar module. And he said sleeping on the moon in these hammocks is just like sleeping in the softest feather bed you could ever imagine. Mm-hmm. Um, he said it was glorious. I, I thought that was pretty cool. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so that's my experience with NASA. I think it was just really fun to be part of like a big team of people all kind of with the same mission um, Mm -hmm. 
We had the four of us crew members. We had a mission control that consisted of about 20 people. Um, at least two of them were on duty around the clock. Um, and then we had all the principal investigator scientists kind of behind the whole thing, collecting our data and monitoring us. And so it was just cool to be a big par part of a big NASA operation. So do you want to talk about any of the experiments that you did or? Oh, sure. Um, yeah, part of, part of what we did were a bunch of simulations and experiments. And these things were kind of meant to get us into the mindset that we are, in fact, on a spacecraft far away from Earth and like kind of help us get into the simulation. Um, and it would help fill, the, fill our days. And then they would monitor, like for group tasks especially, um, you know, what are the group interactions like? But some examples were we grew um, hydroponic plants. Mm -hmm. um, and we, every other day, we had to measure their height and describe their leaf shape and their um, growth characteristics and photograph them and document them and send it all to Earth. And um, so that was one example. That was kind of my favorite one because that was the only thing that involved all plants. It was like a nice reminder of outside. Mm, what home. plants did you grow? We grew coleus mm. and we grew petunias. Oh. Mm. And the petunias blossomed on like the day we got out. It was perfect. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, that was nice. Uh, what else did we do? We had to build rovers, um, mm. which was pretty fun. So we did some robotics and that was really fun. So there's a, a high school group apparently has um, put together these robotic kits and supply the code on the computers and we construct them and we could put them in different configurations. Um, so we spent about one or two days a week working on our rovers. Um, that was pretty fun. Um, some of the other biological monitoring that they did of us um, consisted of blood draws, urine samples, saliva samples. Um, I think they're looking at viruses in the saliva. Mm. Um, stool samples, ECGs, EEGs. Mm. When you were doing all the samples and stuff, were there like medical people who popped in or did you have to do all the sampling yourself, like the blood draws and stuff? So most things we ourselves, the blood draw were the exception. Mm -hmm. And the blood draws were done in a funny way to minimize contact because right. yeah. they yeah, didn't yeah. want us to have any contact. And so on blood draw days, we would um, set up the airlock with a black curtain across half the room. And the airlock had a door to the main capsule or to the outside. And so the phlebotomist would come in and set up and let us know when they were ready. And then we would enter the airlock, stick our arm through a little hole yes. in the black curtain and they would draw our blood. Ah. We called we called her or him, I don't know. Um, we called them the the phlebotobots. Phlebotomist <laughs> 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 <Phlebotomous> robots. <laughs> and we never talked to them, we never saw them. Oh. I've only gone with blood. space vampire, but <laughs> space I, vampire. I just hate blood draws, so I was imagining like I would never be able to do that myself, but I kinda like the idea of not being able to see or talk or hear anything. It's like yeah. I'm done now, thank you. Huh. Yeah, and for us, it, it was it was easier not to have to see it happening. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah. Um, okay, so maybe it's a, a good time to move on to the last segment of our show, which is a game that I created called GTA. 
guess that acronym. (laughs) 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 Um, And so the way way that this game works is that my guests have provided me with some acronyms that are commonly used in their field. And we're going to make my co-host, Woozy, try to guess what those mean. And then uh, our guests will jump in and tell us what they actually mean. And uh, yeah. So uh, maybe we'll start with one of Forrest's acronyms. Um, G-I-S-T. Get insane stomach tapeworms. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> mm, I don't. I don't know if that necessarily relates to your to your field or if you were. Uh, I, I know that's what it stands for, but like I'm not sure if that if, that, if you were giving it from a different uh, uh, section. It's this is a medical condition. Yeah. It, it's, <laughs> well, it's it's more of an aspirational thing. Mm. It's like, yeah. <laughs> it, you're really close. Yeah. I, yeah. It's it's geographic, information, science, and technology. Oh, so I basically I basically you got basically it. had it. Yeah, yeah. You basically <laughs> had it. And so I, I say GIS and throw that around all the time, but uh, it's it covers all of the tools and processes and software and approaches within uh, the kind of modern spatial analysis. Okay, and so your last acronym from Forest is GPS. Oh, uh, Global Positioning System. Hey, Bingo. congratulations. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. one point for Woozy. Yeah. <laughs> uh, who's keeping track of these, by the way, um, these points? WMUA. Great. <laughs> They'll distribute prizes cool. to the appropriate parties at the end of um, Time. the century. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay, your next acronym. You, you heard this one during the show, but do you know what it stands for? HERA. Oh. Did you, did you actually say what this stood for? H-E-R-A. I did say. I did. I, f- okay. Um. We'll see if you were listening. <laughs> <laughs> Pressure's on. This uh, is actually one of those attention span <laughs> <laughs> surveys. I actually, I actually, like, I stopped taking my hair all recently. <laughs> <laughs> uh, okay. Uh, helio? It's okay. I won't be offended. No. Damn. All right. Oh, sorry, go on. I'm just going to do, oh. do my own thing yeah, then, Hera. Uh, helio, electronic... Radio antenna. That Ooh, sounds super that sounds, technical. I'm, yeah, it I'm, sounds I'm, real. Yeah. <laughs> if I'm it wanna, doesn't exist, they should make it. I think so. <laughs> That's a good one. Was he right? <laughs> the answer is human exploration research analog. Oh. And that's the name of my NASA mission. Cool. Well, that's the end of our show. Thank you so much for joining me, Will and Forrest and Woozy. Thanks for having us. This was yeah. a ton of fun. Thank you. Yeah, it was great. All right. Nice. You just listened to Lab Talk with Laura on 91.1 FM, WMUA Amherst. I'm your host, Laura Federuso. My guests today were Dr. Forrest Bolick and Dr. Will Daniels. My co-host was cartoonist and comedian Woozy Kurtz. The jingle at the beginning of our show was written and produced by Matt Woodland. You can check out Lab Talk with Laura on Facebook and iTunes and SoundCloud. Give us a like or a subscribe or a share. Um, online hosting of Lab Talk with Laura is pr- supported by the Emmerich Labs in the Polymer Science Department. Thank you so much for listening. Keep it locked to 91.1 FM WMUA Amherst. <laughs>